Good evening, everybody. Today is Friday, November 6, 2020, and you are watching or listening to another edition of Forward Maryland from the Idea Lab at Forward Maryland World Headquarters. I'm Bill Woodcock. I'm Jason Booms. And I'm Steve Hunt, and in honor of the next president of the United States of America, I am rocking the University of Delaware gear for my fellow Blue Hen, Dance Chicken Dance. Let's close this show. And, and, and Steve, thank you for joining us again this evening. Uh, I, I did not uh, think as creatively of you, but I uh, channeled my inner Red Auerbach and, and lit a victory cigar this evening. Hey, it works for me. But... A little victory cigar because the the election of 2020 uh, brought good tidings to Democrats and and for, could possibly bring us more. Uh, however, um, you know it, it wasn't all uh, wasn't all sunshine and roses for the blue team, and there were some interesting things for the red team to hang their hats on. So, without any further ado. Let's break down the results of the 2020 elections as we know them so far and as we feel that they're going to be uh, in the same order in which we did in our last podcast. So going to my magic wall, nowhere as, as uh, technologically elaborate as John King or Steve Karnacki's, the president, we have Joe Biden with 253. 253 electoral votes, some say 264 because Fox and others uh, gave uh, Arizona already uh, to Biden. Mm -hmm. 213, this says 215, it's an error for President Trump. Now, as of the time of this recording, uh, Biden is, of course, ahead in Pennsylvania by about 15,000 votes. Uh, ahead in Arizona by about 40,000, ahead in Nevada by about 22,000, ahead in Georgia by about 4,000, uh, and behind in North Carolina by about 45,000. So it looks as if, uh, with multiple possible paths, Joe Biden will be the 46th president of the United States very soon. Jason, what, what, what make you of the 2020 election results for president? <laughs> well, you know, it, it's good to see a recognizable map again, I suppose. Uh, you know, taking a look at uh, the, uh, the Midwest, uh, minus Ohio, of course, minus Iowa, unfortunately. Um, it, it, uh, it, it looked like it, like it should have been, and not, not a, obviously not a best case scenario. Uh, but, uh, you know, it looks like enough for the win, uh, enough for what it may eventually at the end of the day be a fairly comfortable win. Um, you know, I, I've got a habit of going through and rating the uh, presidential elections uh, based on how few votes it would take to uh, flip an outcome. Uh, initially, uh, when the results were coming in, I was like, oh, this may be one of the top two or three closest races of all time. But uh, based on where the count is headed, it looks as though it, you know, it it, it may be end up being a, a pretty decent night for former Vice President Biden. Steve? Yeah, I, I absolutely agree with uh, Jason's analysis. I think the, the four words we need to say and everybody needs to say are the following. Joe Biden was right. Everybody crushed on him when he came out and it was about, you know, the soul of America and, 
and we just need to change course. Uh, they crushed it when he said, you know, we could come together as a country. He didn't have 86,000 plans. Um, he wasn't trying to burn the whole house down. He was too old. He was too moderate. He was too this. I would submit that nobody else of the 25 Democrats running could have pulled this off based on the vote count and the way the electorate fell. I, I just I don't see anybody else having the ability to pull it off, especially in some of the states where he pulled it off. Um, love them all. Love some of them more than others. Some of them maybe I don't love. But I, I think Biden was the man for the job that needed to be done, which is to end Trump. Um I think there are some encouraging signs. Uh, Jason, you're right. The map is much more recognizable. A couple of quick things I would say. Any Democrat running for president who spends more than a minute and a half because they have to in Florida is wasting their time. Uh, until further notice, Florida is gone. It, it just is. Um, the investments made in Atlanta over recent years, starting with Stacey Abrams, having won the governorship. I don't care who's sitting in the chair. She won. But uh, you know, that investment is worth it and it will continue to be worth it, maybe as early as these uh, two runoffs. I think Georgia has Virginia potential. Uh, Arizona, I love the potential out there. I think it's poised to be more, I won't say New Mexico, which is a lot bluer, but more like a Colorado. I think there's some possibilities there. Um, I think Texas is still a ways off, but I think it's getting closer. I think North Carolina is getting closer. So uh, there's some good signs for the future, I know a lot of Dems wanted the big blowout, the early knockout. That probably would have meant Florida or Texas or even Ohio. We saw some of the early numbers. Um, I think that was some fool's gold. I think that the Biden people played it exactly right. They they sent some forces into Florida just because, let Bloomberg spend some money so they didn't have to spend their own. But there was some good stuff there. Um, on the flip side, and we'll break the numbers down, um, the fact that this was even close says a lot of things about a lot of voters out there. And I would love to have conversations as to why they could overlook the last four years, the last nine months, 230,000 people dead plus and say, yeah, I want four more years of that. I just, you know, whatever your singular issue is, whether it's something you want or hatred of Democrats, how you could, I just don't get it. It, it this should have been the blowout we all thought it was going to be. The fact that it doesn't, it didn't turn out to be one and won't. I think it says something about this country, about how divided we are. And I don't know where we go from here, um, especially with some of the results in, in on Capitol Hill. So yeah, I just want to add, uh, Steve, one thing, actually, and you raised a really valid point. Trump is a horrible Republican candidate. <laughs> I mean, amongst the, the base, such as it is, I mean, obviously, he's he's strong. But if you take a look at states, you know, behind the blue wall, uh, like Maine, where Trump getting 43% of the vote, New Hampshire, 45.5% of the vote, not to mention the big states in the Midwest where, you know, or, or Pennsylvania, where we're still counting, and uh, Nevada and Arizona, uh, it, it's, one wonders what would happen if a more responsible conservative, um, or theoretically more responsible conservative were to, were to run, say Tom Cotton, for example. Um, it's it's frightening to think about if the Republicans got their stuff together, what they could do. Yeah. As so, Bill's reflecting. Well, <laughs> yeah. I'm watching actually Arizona come in with about 4,700 more votes, and they're almost exactly evenly split between Biden and Trump, 2361 to 2337. So the lead holds uh, yeah. as of this moment. Um 
a number of things I think to 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 what both of you said. Um, Steve, I, I I hear you about the thing with Florida. Uh, well, actually, the first thing I'm going to say is to speak to your point about about Joe getting into this race. Um, he was pretty much retired, pretty much done, happy yeah. with his career in public service, happy with his life. And I, I for one, will buy that when he heard what Trump said six months into his presidency or so after the Charlottesville protest and the killing of that young woman, uh, that's, that's when he decided to get into it. And you cannot. I mean, Joe Biden seems to be maybe one of the nicest people and most humble people ever involved in national politics. Uh, but you cannot not be at that level and not have ego. And sure. so to realize that he was going to risk a 47-year career for something that was not a done deal at the outset. I mean, people thought it was Bernie's time. They wanted to give Liz, Elizabeth Warren a chance. Here were some up-and-comers like Buttigieg and Castro who, who are, and, and Kamala who were going to make an impact. Um, he, he laid it all on the line, and he called in every one of his chips from that 47-year career, and he got this stuff done. Uh, you know, we can remember how that campaign was on life support when Jim Clyburn endorsed them in South Carolina. And he was also going to be in trouble because Mike Bloomberg had jumped in and Bloomberg was going to be the moderate's choice. And then you have to be lucky as well as good. Elizabeth Warren took him down in a debate in the first half hour. And instead of everybody flocking to Elizabeth Warren, they flocked to Joe. So, you know, he not only did he, you know, he, he put up when he said he did what he said he could do, but he totally validated, I mean, his entire career, which he did not have to validate. I mean, look at the other side of it. I mean, look if Clyburn had, you know, look at if either of those things I just mentioned hadn't happened. Oh, Joe Biden was a great vice president to Barack Obama, but three times he ran for president. He couldn't get the job done. He just couldn't, you know, he couldn't get up to that level, blah, 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 blah. Uh, so fate, fate takes quite a hand there, um, as well as, as good fortune and opportunities that certainly he created. Uh, the map is interesting. Uh, Stacey Abrams is officially awesome. Uh, she was before, but her work with Fair Fight obviously has paid off. Uh, we're going to get down to the Senate in a minute, but looks like both of those seats are going into runoffs. And in fact, if Democrats win both of those, it looks like, you know, Dems may control a 51-50 Senate majority. And that's a pipe dream in itself, but not an unrealistic one. Uh, hey, can I... Can I throw something out there since you're talking to Stacey Abrams? By the way, um, you know, Stacey Abrams is in a position now where she can pretty much ask for and receive anything she wants right now. Um, but there are a lot of other people who are behind a Stacey Abrams and have done a whole lot of work, a lot of different grassroots organizations. Uh, I'm just going to be blunt and say this. 
those who want this country to go in a good direction and want to Trump out, say thank you to black people. Okay, just just oh, say Philly, Detroit, Milwaukee, Atlanta. You look at all the swing states, and it was that urban vote that carried it over. And you know we could break down demographics, but the one demographic that came through first getting Biden going, Jim Clyburn, you mentioned him, but uh, then through the general election, honorable mention to the McCain family, somewhere in heaven. John McCain and John Lewis are high-fiving at the prospect of uh, being a part of getting Donald John Trump out of office. Oh, absolutely. I mean, if you look forward to 2024, and no matter how good a job Biden might do as, as president, I cannot see an 82-year-old man running for re-election. Of course, he hasn't officially ruled it out, nor should he at this point, but reality kind of sets in. I mean, the two people who emerge as the leaders of the Democratic Party are Kamala Harris and Stacey Abrams. Yeah. I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't see another person in there. A case, I guess, could be made for Pete, but I, I don't, you know, I think Pete has to run another election in Indiana and win it uh, before, before you could put him up there on that level. Um, I'm going to throw one more out, actually, because I, I do oh. think that for her transformative influence, despite the fact she doesn't hold much power in Congress, uh, what she's been able to do as part of the squad, I think you have to look at AOC as a leader of the party. And quite frankly, uh, given what might happen with a break in the Democratic Party the next couple of years, what AOC decides to do may decide whether or not that effort succeeds or not. Oh, now you are bringing up some some serious well, palace intrigue, which I I'm think gonna, also is going to be a, a point in a minute. Or we can I'm just go on now. Hey, Jason, I just want to throw one out there for you. Um, and I have said this, um, you know, not here on this podcast, but I'll say it now. I still think the squad member who has the greatest potential going forward is Presley. I I, I honestly think she's the one that will come out of that squad because she's. If you notice, even with Trump, he goes after Omar, he goes after AOC, takes a few shots at um, – got always for you, Rob. Yep. But Presley is the one that doesn't normally get touched. I think that uh, AOC certainly is a force, and I think if she wants it, she certainly will have a following. But I, I keep looking at Presley and saying she might be the one of that group that you, you down the road you see in the Senate and beyond. Yeah, I mean, she does have that. I mean, you know, she, granted, she's relative moderate. So, <laughs> you know, uh, so, yeah, I, I could definitely see her statewide. I mean, she has that skill set. Um, and Liz. She's Liz Warren, I think. She's got that that kind of feel to it. For, yeah. you know, and Bonnie Bleed just grows by another 2,500 in, uh, in Nevada. So, Steve, keep interjecting. Okay. Because every time you do, it's like ringing a bell and it's a wonderful life. Joe Biden. I'm a joke with Elvis, man. <laughs> so, I mean, I'll, I'll briefly wrap up because I do want to get to this congressional thing. The map is a little bit more normal, but the map also has peril in it as much as there's opportunity. I don't think Texas is a doable function for 2024. I think 2028, maybe, with the changing demographics. Uh, Georgia is definitely in play. Would be nice to see North North Carolina uh, get some sensibility next election. I mean, they went for Obama. We need to crack the nut with, with Carolina. Maybe in 24, if it's a Harris candidacy, who knows? Um, the blue wall is held and is actually turned over to Biden in bigger numbers than Trump won them. 
uh, last time out. And, and um, you know, disappointments in Ohio and in Florida. Uh, the Cuban-American community, uh, anybody who has watched the documentary 537, uh, the local politics in South Florida plays a tremendously big role in presidential politics. I mean, as much as people would like to think they do elsewhere, I know they do here in Howard County, local politics doesn't really do that much in terms of deciding who's going to vote for president. I mean, I think in Howard County, Biden won by 41 percentage points, a uh, far bigger margin than any candidate for governor, county executive, and so forth. But uh, in South Florida, they do. And uh, I, I'm not sure exactly what was the problem there uh, with Biden or Obama, but um, they, they, they stayed Republican. I mean, it seems that the Trump campaign's whole cry of socialism, communism, going to destroy your neighborhoods, it seems that that was playing down there. Um, and is, and also, also in Congress, because yeah, uh, two Democrats got taken out. Yeah. Biden got a lot of crap early in the summer for not really doing much in South Florida. And there's part of me that wonders if that wasn't intentional, if they weren't already figuring that, you know, there's there's too much energy that would have to go into the Cubans in South Florida in order to win it and make a big play for Florida. Uh, the last thing I'll say, and then we'll, and then uh, you can reflect on this or we can go to the Congress. I don't understand these polls. Uh, the, the margin of error was roughly about six points. Uh, pretty, And those could be applied to various states as well as nationally. Haven't done enough looking into it yet to see, you know, if that six points is even across, across battleground states. Uh, would kind of indicate that it would be. Ohio was kind of picked to be about a 1% for Trump. It was about a 6%. Florida was two or three for Biden. It's gone about three or three or four percent for Trump. Uh, Texas was going to be about even Stephen. It wound up being about five percent for Trump. So again, I, I don't know if that's just the mirage of the, the the shy Trump voter or what it is, but but there clearly is some is some error there. Or perhaps it was just that this was an election in three phases. With the election day voting, uh, the in-person early voting, and all the mail-in ballots, I don't know. Uh, it I, would be no, I just wanted to say because actually, uh, my class we had this conversation yesterday because I knew this. <laughs> I knew walking in, the students would want to ask, "How come the pollsters didn't get it right?" Uh, and of course, it's a fun uh, question every four years. Um, but um, you know, my take on it was, I mean, it was, it was a very challenging model to try to, to uh, recreate, especially given COVID, given changing voting patterns. I think there might have been certain assumptions going into which favored the Democrats uh, and that uh, had people run a more conservative estimate on what was likely to turn out, um, which I think they frankly should have done, given the fact that, you know, you, you've, you've seen this before, like in 1990 in the uh, North Carolina U.S. Senate race. Uh, Jesse Helms, famously against a sh uh, mayor of Charlotte, Harvey Gant. Harvey Gant. And, uh, and Gant, uh, under, and he, according to the polls, he was in pretty good shape against Helms. But there was a very quiet vote that wouldn't tell interviewers, but it was pro-Helms, and Helms goes on to win. 
But yet, as a good project management professional, I know that he has an awesome chart named after him and will have so forever. Yeah, I still I still blame Michael Jordan. <laughs> That's what you should. I should too. Uh, so talk a little bit of Congress because because the low tech board on the Idea Lab has some has some sobering uh, commentary here. So the Senate balance per the New York Times is currently tied at forty eight forty eight with projections and votes not in. Uh, you know, so many people we thought were going to win lost. Uh, like almost all of them, uh, except Mark Kelly and John Hickenlooper. Thanks, guys, uh, for backing us up. Sarah Gideon, where were you? Um, Amy McGrath, where were you? Uh, Amy, none of us predict, predicted Amy McGrath would win. But <laughs> the House of Representatives, uh, it looked like single-digit wins for the Dems, but now the projection is about 10 seats for the Republicans, 5 to 10. I mean, what does, I mean, getting to what we were talking about, um, you know, it's not just the Republican Party that's going to have to do some soul searching, but the Democrats too. Um, is Nancy Pelosi going to be speaker come January? If not, does it become AOC or a squad member or, you know, somebody else from the class of 2018? You know, Steve, what, what, what do you think? I mean, it's hard to, it's weird to say with a Democrat who's, going to be the president, but there's some soul searching to be done. Where, where do you think this is headed? Well, actually, I think there's more soul searching on the Democratic side than the Republican side. Uh, they know who they are. And I think to, you know, your point and Jason's point, you know, if they ran somebody not named Trump, like a Tom Cotton or, or a Nikki Haley or something like that, who knows what happens there? So you know, there, there was a call I was reading about this uh, amongst a Democratic caucus in the House, and apparently, you know, F-bombs were flying, and, and it pretty much became a, a shouting match between the moderates and the liberals, with the moderates saying, you know, it's too much about socialism and defunding the police and this, that, and the other. And, it, and, and the other end, you know, uh, I think uh, Par, Parmal uh, out of Washington was saying, well, no, it's you know, tell that to the people in the urban areas who basically carried Trump's ass. I mean, yeah, carried Trump's ass out the door. Um, so I think there's a lot of soul searching. As far as the results, my real head scratcher is Maine. Uh, you know, how how does Biden win Maine? I, I know there's a whole congressional district part, but overall he won Maine, but Gideon didn't. And, you know, uh, maybe we have underestimated uh, Susan Collins and her ability to connect with the people of Maine in such a way that they keep sending her back. I, I just don't know. I, I think it'll end eventually. It, the same thing happened with Claire McCaskill in, in Missouri. She kept finding ways to win and eventually ran out of uh, tricks uh, or horrible candidates running against her. But uh, that's the only head scratch. The rest of the Senate races, uh, you know, when you peel back the tons of money that went into it and the hopes, it was a lot of red states. South Carolina is a red state. North Carolina is a red-ish state, and Cunningham pretty much crapped the bed late in the campaign with the whole. And I'm sure Jason's going to break out his phone again like he did in the last uh, our last little squabble. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you know, Texas. I mean, I can go on and on. Uh, Missouri, uh, Mississippi, Alabama. I mean, these were red states. So even I guess my biggest disappointments uh, besides Gideon were probably Iowa. I thought Greenfield had a real shot. I really maybe because I just think the guy would be 
a good senator, and I thought he had a shot with Steve Bullock in Montana. But uh, this was a very red-friendly cycle. Uh, there are some definite possibilities in 22. Um, the House, I, I, again, we talk about Florida. You know, two seats in that South Florida area, include Donna Shalala, flipped. Um, so I think there's definitely some conversations that need to go on within the Democratic caucus. Um, it'll be interesting to see how where they go going forward. Because like I said, I think the Republicans, uh, they're going to walk away from this saying, we just don't need somebody named Trump at the top and we're good. We can keep running on the same shit, just not with him. Steve, I swear Biden got 400 more votes in Pennsylvania. <laughs> you were doing this the whole time. You could just talk for the next 20 minutes. We're good. <laughs> Jason, what make you of this mess? Oh, gosh. Um, well, I mean, that, that's the interminable struggle in the Democratic caucus is, 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 is left right. And without uh, Trump serving as a unifying enemy, <laughs> um, it, it does get a little bit more challenging as far as direction is concerned. I mean, yeah, when you read about centrists, uh, you know, starting to question Nancy Pelosi's leadership, and I'm no particular fan of Nancy Pelosi, uh, for the record. Um, fine, whatever. But, uh, you know, it's, I think the Democrat Party does need to consider what our vision is moving forward. I mean, who are we as a party? I mean, we're really not the party of Joe Biden. <laughs> I mean, Joe Biden's there. He's, you know, the one in line. But, um, you know, but to have a governing vision that's capable of actually being a functioning majority, uh, what takes us back there against a more of a normal candidate? Uh, I mean, that's the question. Um, and, you know, and also what'll get, Another thing, too, which the party has to think about is, I mean, I know redistricting is coming up. The Democratic Party historically has done a terrible job uh, in, in definitely in the 2000s and the 2010s as far as developing districts at the state level that could be won by Democrats and serve as incubators for movement up to higher office. So it's getting that pipeline going. We have a decent presidential pipeline right now, but a lot of other places, it's, it's, it's a fairly weak bench for the federal and state roles. So I, I just want to see us do a better job of, of organizing locally. I think that's, that's the big concern I have right now. If we're going to see a transformational election, we need to have it take place as close to the ground as humanly possible. Are, are you saying, Jason, that with Maryland's wonderful congressional map, there's no way to have like a farm system of talented <laughs> state legislators like move up to run in the inkblot districts of like, say, three seven, two, four, five, <laughs> almost all of them? Well, that, that's an unfair question because I have a horrifically low opinion of most state legislators, just granted, most. Uh, but- uh, <laughs> You know some listen to this podcast. Oh, and I'm, I'm fans of theirs. Yay! <laughs> but, you know, um, ex with a couple exceptions. But uh, the, uh, <laughs> depending on who's listening. But uh, but no, I mean you know, Maryland is exceptional. Miller, <laughs> Maryland is the kind of state where because it, it is a functionally a one-party state, um, you know it, it does what it does, and leadership is going to come out regardless of how the sort of the districts are drawn. Uh, but it's states that are more competitive, uh, like your Michigans that should see far more balance. I mean, it, you know, it, it's. I just keep thinking back to the fact that we have five Supreme Court justices that were selected by Republicans who never should have been elected to high public office. Uh, so just sort of, you know, reworking what sort of taking it back down to what was the cause of that 
and thinking about realignment possibilities. And I think the party just needs, the Democratic Party needs to get better on the technical element of governing. So I think that both ends of, cons of Pennsylvania Avenue are going to have a lot of work in these next couple of years. I mean, getting back to my earlier comment that, that this is Kamala Harris's and Stacey Abrams' party now, and I know we've thrown out other names. I believe that Stacey Abrams has a lot to teach we Democrats about how to operate in rural areas and how to, how to communicate a democratic message out to people in the hinterlands of their respective states. And I mean, parts of Georgia are about as rural as it gets. Also suburban, also urban. Uh, Kamala Harris is the vice president. And I, I don't know what her portfolio is going to be, but you know, I agree with your analysis, Jason. I mean, Joe's there, uh, he's the instrument. And he's going to be the guy who hopefully can get stuff done with Mitch and, you know, get some real things happening in terms of stimulus, infrastructure, um, a lot of things that Trump has flushed down the toilet. Uh, but the building of the party has to be, I think, in part coming from the White House and in part coming from Stacey Abrams and in part coming from Congress. And to, to what both of you said about current leadership in Congress, um, it's got to go. Uh, we are, I believe, beyond the time of Nancy Pelosi and especially Steny Hoyer in leadership in this, the House of Representatives. At this point, I, I basically have no preference as to who those new leaders are. But if those people are elected again to head the caucus, the Democratic caucus, we will have left our underbelly wide open to be abused in 2022 by Republicans who now will only need to win about 10 more districts in order to retake the House. And you can rest assured that like what will happen in Maryland, when congressional districts are redrawn, most of the state legislatures are Republican. They are going to redraw districts that will favor Republicans, and they're going to do everything they can to yell socialist, communist, whatever in two years the rallying cry is going to be. Maybe they'll be contract with America 3. Who knows? But remember, there was a two. And, and, you know, they will, I mean, they're, they're going to come gun it. There's no doubt about that. Um, and I would hope that the people in charge of the House of Representatives now realize that. But I don't think they have. I don't see there those future leaders who were being groomed. No one talks about Nancy Pelosi's heir apparent. No one talks about someone who's going to grab the gavel. Keith Ellison, who was a perfectly decent candidate for House for Speaker of the House, is now the Attorney General in Minnesota. I don't know who that person's going to be, but it's got to be somebody, and it's got to be somebody with some vision who is going to be willing to work with these other people I mentioned, the Vice President, Stacey Abrams, 
others who I think Stacey Abrams would be a terrific DNC chair, but if the DNC was something truly about party building, not if it was figurehead and, and, and comms. Um, but bear whoever... in mind too that, uh, you know, Stacey Abrams, she could be the speaker of the house. The speaker doesn't need to be a member of the house. So, you know, if the party was looking to move beyond uh, Nancy Pelosi, they can go, uh, they can go outside the house. That would be a beautiful dream, but I don't think that's ever happened. No, it has not. Well, I'll say two things, guys, about, about it. And, and Bill, I was just about to say what you said, so I will just you know, second it. I think Stacey Abrams, her next logical place would be to chair the DNC because she does understand, and to Jason, your point about party building at the grassroots and, and really almost building it, you know, taking what Stacey did in a place like Georgia and expanding that because I can't think of a, a state or anywhere in the country where that would not work. So I think giving her charge of the DNC. I think the other thing here is Biden, you know, uh, said it himself that uh, I think it was during a speech or I forget when it was, but that he's more of a transitional figure. And I think that's absolutely right. Biden had one job. His job was get rid of Trump. He was the guy to get that guy out because nothing else happens without him. Now, Dems, we did not capture enough of the House and the Senate to really execute as much as we wanted to, but we got the big job done. Let's not forget that. Um, so I think Stacey Abrams, if given that power to build that organization at a grassroots level, I think that would be one way to get this process going and, and, and position the Democratic Party to have that message that can be carried throughout, because she clearly knows how to do that. So I think that would be a natural place for her. Uh, you know, It's certainly... No offense to Tom Perez, but if I hear that he's going to continue on, that's going to be a mistake. Oh um, I, I think it, it, you know, if Biden says, well, Tom, you can just keep the job, I think that's a horrible mistake. There needs to be new blood, and I think Stacey's it. The House and the Senate, you're absolutely right, because not only is it Pelosi, I mean, you look at her lieutenant, Steny Hoyer, Jim Clyburn, who, you know, yes, he saved Biden and gave us the president, all, but still, all these guys and, and ladies are all up there. And the Senate's no different with Chuck Schumer, et cetera. So, you know, th there needs to be something done to shake that up. If, if it's the same group of people, I, I think you guys are right. Um, we're, De Dems are not going to be positioned going forward to do what they need to do to, to put that message out and have that platform to carry what should be a winning message going forward. And, and what it, it does have to be more progressive. Uh, it just does. Well, I, I have wonderful thoughts about Tom Perez's future, as well as who the next senator for, from California should be. But we have about 10 to 15 minutes uh, to to wrap things up. So I think we should probably move along to the one race of note in, in Maryland, where the uh, great uh, Kim September Klasik uh, played it out at about, what, 40%? of the vote against Puense Fume for Maryland's 7th District. Any thoughts about that? She did better than the, what, one-third we were projecting. Well, did, didn't Steve, did, didn't you nail that per, uh, percentage? Weren't you at 27 and a half or something overall? Oh, that was Larry Pretlow. We're getting yeah, there. Yeah, I, I was not I was not that high on her. Uh, and, and, and my uh, initial, I think, I think Mfume was a horrible candidate. Mm -hmm. I, I think that she, I think that he coasted. And I think Klasik did work. And, you know, 
I think she stirred up enough of a vote to get to that number. I think I, I did not hear of Mfume really actively going hard at this thing. I think he pretty much just thought it was in the bag. So, so I put, I lay some at his feet and, you know, she put in the work um, and spent the money to, to at least make it a better race than it should have been. Still, I believe next stop, One America News or the Trump TV yeah. network. Yeah. Or RT maybe, but. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But, uh, yeah, no, I mean, you know, it was disconcerting seeing the number of supporters uh, that she had waving signs outside the polling places. Uh, you know, because that's something you're not used to seeing for Republican congressional candidates in, the, in this part of the country. Hey, $18 an hour goes far. I mean, that's a $15 minimum wage is awesome. And I do hope that they spend the money well. I mean, given the many, many problems some of her volunteers seem to have based on my brief conversations with them. Jason, but, I'm going to guarantee you they already have. Oh, yeah. <laughs> God bless them. So, so the last the last races we shall examine will be in the last 10 minutes of our fine episode this evening shall be the Board of Elections races, uh, Board of Education races in Howard County. And rather than go through them all one by one, let's just take them as a batch. So in District 1, we had Christina Delmont Small win with, I believe she was in the low 60s. Uh, Antonia Watts won with 78, 77 or 72% of the vote, which means that La Prette, Larry Pretlow II received 27% of the vote, which our very own Steve Hunt predicted on the nose. <laughs> so this is why he's he's like he's like the magic man tonight. Uh, Joe won in the uh, walk walkover that was the District Three race. Yun Lu uh, handily defeated Cindy Valancourt for District Five. And in the heavyweight brawl that was much more like a council race or maybe a U.S. Senate race than a local board of education race, Jen Mallow defeated Suzanne Palmer by 52 to 47 with 1% for write-in candidate Julie Hotop. Any thoughts from either of you about the board of education races in Howard County, which leaves the board of education uh, very interestingly, with three known Democrats, three known Republicans, uh, one who skirts the fence between blue, red, and purple. Also, uh, one man, six women, and also uh, three uh, Caucasians, three whites, uh, one African-American, uh, one Hispanic person, Jolene Mosley, and um, two Chinese-Americans. Well, it feels like a functional conservative majority. <laughs> I mean, that's the thing that it comes down to at the moment for me. Uh, you know, seeing the percentage that came in uh, for District 5, I was, I'm frankly, I was a bit surprised by the margin. I mean, I thought that you know, maybe, you know, the name identification with Valancourt would hold and that should make the race a little bit closer. But just thinking about the demographics out there, the uh, the, the partisan breakouts and, and looking what happened at the margin in District 1, it... it it does feel as though the board has a more uh, conservative uh, tone to it now. Steve? 
I would agree. And, and, you know, we talked about, you know, some of the results, you know, at the presidential level, the congressional level, um, certainly those who you would associate with Republicans or conservatives or, you know, however you want to coin it, uh, forget this nonpartisan shit. I'm done with it. Um, they overperformed, you know, Christina Delmont small. I thought that'd be a close race. She blew out more yet. I mean, just straight up did Larry Pretlow. I think a 27% that is an overperformance. I, I don't think, I threw it out there because I thought his personal support was there, but that is overperforming. Uh, certainly Palmer, at where she is, and then Lou blowing out Valancourt. So I think that you know it sets up some interesting elements for 2022. Uh, if you are a progressive or a Democrat um, in Howard County, uh, you may not want to be as comfortable as maybe you thought you could be after 2018 because um, I think – uh, District one, I've, I've put it out there. I would not be surprised to see Christina Delmont Small running for county council um, on the Republican side. So I, I, that that would be my initial thought. Is I, I think the conservative side of, of the fence here in Howard County um, overperformed in those races that were competitive, not including three. So I understand that the most intellectually developed thing that Howard County Republicans do as an organization is at their monthly meeting at the Columbia Presbyterian Church, they go into the fellowship hall, lie down on their side, and spin around on their ears doing the curly shuffle. <laughs> not This is not a bastion of intellectual thought anymore uh, in, in Howard County. Uh, however, if I was cogent and a Republican, uh, I would look at a candidate who got 47% in District 4, and I would have a very serious conversation with that candidate about possibly running countywide as a Republican, maybe for county executive. Um, you know, Suzanne Palmer had a great operation. Um, there really were not the haymakers that I had thought I was going to see thrown at her. Um, you know, discussing her record, discussing her qualifications, uh, discussing any of the other attributes. She kind of, she kind of, you know, didn't really, I mean, she really kind of got a ride. Um, you know, the media, the online media was talking about school choice and privatizing schools and, um, you know, uh, charter schools and pay for play schools in Howard County. Um, but it seems to me that those critiques only went so far. Those didn't saturate into the community. And, um, you know, she came scarily close to knocking off a qualified incumbent in, in Howard County's most liberal district. Uh, otherwise, you know, yes, as I said at the outset, these results definitely give more conservative forces, at least locally, uh, a, a good amount of hope. Um, and, and, you know, interestingly, Howard County now boasts um, three Chinese American representatives. I mean, counting State Senator Lamb. Uh, but two of them are on the more, of a, on the more conservative bend. Um, you know, what does this mean for 2022? Um, I don't know. I'm going to guesstimate another D3 walk for Howard County Council. Uh, Republicans probably won't put up a soul. 
probably likewise in D2, since the aforementioned La Pret has already said he's going to run for council. So we know how that's going to work out already. And I know there's going to be redistricting, but I do see threats there, Steve, to your point, in, in Ms. Delmont Small and Ms. Palmer to uh, Howard County progressive and democratic politics. Uh, and so far, is, is anything going to get done on our Board of Education? To your point, Jason, uh, I find it very hard to believe. Uh, considering the polarized nature in which many of these races were run, um, I don't see who the consensus builders are on here. Um, I think Jen Mallow has a possibility to be that person. I think Jolene Mosley has a possibility to be that person. I think Watson, I think Lou have a possibility to be that person. Um, Chow Wu, maybe a little bit less. Uh, Catronio, not sure. Delmon Small is going to be sitting there yelling for data. Uh, so it's going to be very interesting to see how this is going to pan out. And it's also going to be very interesting to see how the braying sheep who were yelling redistricting, policy 5410, whatever the hell that is, and everything else. It's going to be interesting to see what they're going to do if they're just going to find new things to be angry about, or if they're just going to wither away and have their, you know, wear their members only jackets and drink their twisted teas. <laughs> well, it's in the handbook, Bill, if you bother to read the handbook, which everyone <laughs> seems to be fascinated by these days. Uh, but I will say one thing. I think there was a bit of a buffering impact from some of those candidates for, uh, for Board of Education. I mean, there's, you, there's only so rough you can be. You can run rough. Uh, but I think if CDS from District 1 were to run for council, or I think if Susan Palmer were to run for County Council District 4 or, or for County Executive, I think they would be facing an absolutely brutal, brutal onslaught uh, in, in what will pass for our local media. So uh, if they do decide to go that route, they should be aware that what they experienced this time around was, was really nothing compared to what it could be. One would hope. Yeah. Well, especially... This has been a tremendously robust and fast-moving edition of Forward Maryland, but we are at about that 50-minute mark when I know people's eyes glaze over. So, Jason, Steve, any final words from either of you? Steve, after you. <laughs> All right. Uh, just, just, you know, just wait for somebody to call this uh, presidential thing so that we can uh, get on with the business at hand. Um, I know Biden and... Uh, Harris are going to be speaking tonight. It'll be interesting to see what they have to say. Uh, be interested to see what Trump tries to say on Twitter in response, and we'll go from there. But let's call the damn thing. Absolutely. Call it. And uh, I guess my last thing is if anyone's interested in campaign memorabilia, give me a call. And we'll have a conversation. Ladies and gentlemen, the age of no malarkey has begun. And with that, for Steve Hunt and Jason Booms, I'm Bill Woodcock. You've been watching or listening to another rousing edition of Forward Maryland. Have a great weekend, everybody. Take care. <laughs>